For the last phrase, we're all in this together. I apologize to some of you who remember 2006 in High School Musical. All right, so sorry I put that song in your head, but so we'll get rid of that and we'll move on. So if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm John, one of the pastors here at North Park. I'm excited to open up God's Word with you uh, today. And so those of you that are joining us uh, online or here in the building, and uh, also I just want to give a little uh, hello to good friend Arlene Walker and others who love to be here at church, but for various reasons aren't able to, but each week they tune in. And we just want you guys to know we love you and care about you. We think about you and we look forward to maybe uh, when you can join us or if not, uh, as you continue to watch online. Uh, Here at North Park, uh, our goal for everyone is to be part of our discipleship process. There's four steps in that. We want everybody to know God. We want everyone to share in community. We want everybody to learn discipleship. We want everybody to love the world. So it's that second step that I'd like to talk about uh, today. As we share in community, one of the things we like to say, and we really believe, is that life is better together. And uh, I've got some proof for that. Uh, this guy, pastor named David Platt, who several years ago uh, said that he came across a Harvard study that tracked 7,000 lives over nine years, and this is what they found. The most isolated people in the study were three more times likely to die than those with the strongest relational connections. Even people who had bad health habits, smoking, poor eating, obesity, alcohol, but had strong social ties, they still lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits but were isolated. So, he says, my takeaway is this. It's better to eat Twinkies, and I would update that with double-stuffed Oreos. (laughs) It's better to eat Twinkies with friends than to eat broccoli alone. And he says, mark that down, that could be the best takeaway from the entire message, because God created us that way. But he really did create us that way, and we believe that the church, when it works well, some of the best times in our life, the healthiest times, are when we are in good relationship with each other in the church. But that's not always everyone's experience all the time. Sometimes the church is a place of rejection, disagreements, a place where you can feel judged, Sometimes it's a place where you're hurt. Sometimes there's power struggles. And sometimes there's a lot of pain. So what is the church, really? And how do we get along with each other is really what I'd like to talk about today. But we're not the only ones that ever have asked these questions. And we're in a a series called Greater Than. And it's a study of the book of Colossians. And we're considering how Christ is greater than. And it's a a letter in your New Testament, if uh, you want to find it either in your Bible or on your device. Here's a table of contents just to remind you of where you can find Colossians. But it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who was a traveling missionary. And he's writing to this church of almost all brand new believers. The gospel had come into this new area, the city of Colossae. And these are people who came to be followers of Christ. And so he's writing to them about different issues that they'll need to face in their life. And one of them is, how do you get along in the church? Uh, We're going to begin in verse 9, the second part, right in the middle of the verse. And he says, Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, we've been looking at this if you've been uh, following the series, or you can go back and read those verses. But as Christians, we have died with Christ and we have been raised with him. So we have put off our old self and we're a new person. And that new person is being renewed in the knowledge an image of its creator. We are becoming more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. So as Christians, this is the new you. We are a new person. Now look what he says in verse 12 then. Therefore, 
as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. When you know Jesus, you do so because God chose you. And then he set us apart for his service. He made us holy. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart. And we are his dearly loved children. That's what God did for us. And as we respond to his grace and we come into relationship with him then, God makes us new people, but he also puts us in a new place. A new place. Look at verse 11, the first word. There it says, here. So you are God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved, and here. So the question is, where is here? As you read the scriptures, you should always be asking questions. Here. Where is here? Well, here is, as new people, with the church, God's people. That's the place where God has put us. And to us, as we read the New Testament or we're familiar with the church, it's just kind of, oh, yeah, that's the church. But reading through the Old Testament and coming into the time of Jesus, the idea that people outside of Israel would be part of God's people just blew their minds. Because in the Old Testament, it was very much a come and see. You would come to Israel to see what God was like. They were his special people, and that's how he was revealing himself. When you get to the New Testament, now Jesus comes and the gospel is go. And now there are people from all different kinds of people groups, all kinds of social structures, all kinds of different ethnicities. All of these people now are becoming the people of God. And that was a revelation. Paul would say, I'm here, God has called me to reveal this incredible truth to the world, that this is the church. So that's where here is. And here, there is no Gentile or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Jews and Gentiles didn't associate with each other. They couldn't eat with each other. They didn't hang out with each other. But here, in this new work that God is doing, they do. So if you were to travel around uh, the city of Colossae on a Sunday morning, you found a house church, and you poked your head in there to look, who would be there? Jew and Gentile. Right away you're like, wait, wait, these guys don't have anything in common. Jews don't hang out with Gentiles. <clears throat> circumcised or uncircumcised, that was a big deal to the Jews, whether you were circumcised or uncircumcised. Barbarian. Barbarians were those who didn't have the education. They didn't have the Greek or Roman uh, culture that didn't have the language that was considered to be the educated. Barbarian is a word that just comes from, uh, well, what, what do they speak? You can't really understand. Bar, 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 bar. Well, they're barbarians. It's mumbo jumbo. They don't know the language of the culture. The Scythians were a group of people way up north that were just uncultured. They were people that just would have been, you know, no, no manners, didn't know how to act kind of a thing. Maybe even very brutish, right? So you're walking, you go to this house church, you poke your head in to see who is there at this Jesus gathering. Oh my, Jews and Gentiles, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, slave and free. There's an estate owner with slaves all in this meeting together. What did they have in common? What would bring such a group together? The last part of the verse. But Christ is all. He is greater than. This is a supernatural work that God has done to bring people from all of these different backgrounds 
together. And what they have in common is Christ is all. And he is in all. He indwells each of them as they meet together. As we think about North Park here, it would be easy if we just take a moment to think, what do we all have in common? Some of us are blue-collar workers. Some of us are white-collar. Some of you grew up Christian Reformed or some other church background. Some of you have none. Some of you have a Korean heritage. Others in this West Michigan area have a very strong Dutch heritage. might be that you're a CEO or management at your company. Others of you are factory workers. Politically, there might be a difference, Democrat, Republican, or Independent. The last election, we voted for different people. Some of you, sports, you live and breathe it. It's such a huge part of your life. And others of you are like, I played darts once. (laughs) Some of us live in the suburbs, some in the inner city, some in the rural areas. Some of us have college degrees or maybe even more education. And some of us didn't finish high school. And we could go on and on about all the different differences that we have, right? But what do we have in common? What makes us a church? It's not this building. It's not a name that we have. It is that Christ is all, and he is in all. And this is God's gift to us. As I've studied this week, I've just been overwhelmed about what a supernatural work that is, that God makes us new people, but he also puts us in a new place. And so we are all in this together. And life is better together sometimes. Sometimes God has done his part. He's made us new people. He's put us into this new place. But there is a part for us to play in order for this thing to work right. Last week, you talked about that instantaneously when you accept Christ, you come to know God. But it's a lifetime of learning God's way. And what we're looking at here today, this will tremendously help you at home in your relationships there. This will help you in your relationships at work. But the context of this is, the relationships that we have in the body of Christ in the church. So let's look at verse 8. And there he says, But now you must also rid yourselves of some things. We've got to get rid of some things. Essentially, we have to wear new clothes. This rid yourselves speaks of clothing. It's uh, the idea of what you wear. So we're a new people, but we also have a new wardrobe. Now, Paul might be thinking of baptism. Baptism at the end of the Old Testament times into the New Testament was done a little differently. And there are some records that baptism took place is that you, you basically, before you went into the water, you took off literally your old clothes. You went into the baptismal pool there and you were baptized, signifying your commitment to Christ that you've died with him and you've been raised again. And then you came out on the other side and you put on new clothes never to wear your old clothes again. Again, a picture. So he might have been thinking about that, but today we're going to use a jacket. A jacket that is filthy and dirty that you would never want to wear as a new person. And he's given us some things that we need to get rid of. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language. So the first is anger. Anger is kind of what's boiling underneath the surface. When something is wrong, when we are upset with something, either that's happened to us or a circumstance, it's just there. It's a continuous state. Now, 
you can be angry and not sin. We can be angry at the right things. Anger is actually an emotion that's supposed to be kind of like a light going off on our car dashboard. That something is there that we need to address or resolve in our heart. That's why we kind of get that adrenaline, like use that to solve something. But when we don't, and it just sees there, it's just kind of below the surface. If it comes out, then that's what rage is. That the anger is boiling there, and then all of a sudden it comes out. The interesting thing is sometimes when we don't resolve anger, uh, maybe it's a work situation or something else isn't going well, we come home, and all of a sudden our, our spouse or our kids do something, and we just blow up in rage, right? And it's really not what they did. It's just this anger was there the whole time. Or it can be one circumstance that we're kind of dealing with, trying to solve it, and we don't. And it just comes out. So rage is kind of when we just let it out. We blow up or we kind of go off, we would say, right? Malice is the idea that I'm angry. Somebody did something to me. And they should get what they deserve. Something bad should happen to them because of what they've done. It's kind of an ill will type idea. Somebody, it's someone's fault, and they should get what's coming to them. Slander is when we put malice into practice with our mouth. <laughs> they deserve bad things, and I'm going to say bad things about them. And so now I put the malice into practice, and I say bad things about them. Filthy language. Filthy language could be just swearing or inappropriate things, but really, over in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that we should not have foul, rotten speech, but instead we should build people up. So I think really what this is hinting at is when we have malice towards someone, we talk bad things about them. We speak abusively towards them. We now build them down rather than build them up. So we have this list of things that he says that we need to put off. These are the clothes we need to take off as new people. He adds one more in verse 9. But do not lie to each other. So interesting that over in Ephesians chapter 4 when it says don't lie... But tell the truth because you belong to one another. You're all part of the same body. And so here too he says, lying. You need to get rid of that. Take off lying. So you might be here going, well, I don't really lie too much. All right? I certainly don't lie to other people. But let's delve just a little bit underneath the surface and look at maybe four possible ways that would technically still be lying. Right? The first one is exaggeration. Exaggeration is when we stretch the truth, usually to make our point or to make ourselves look better. Uh, if you do a little study, the Greek word for that is resume. All right? Exaggeration. But as we interact with each other, it's easy to exaggerate to make our point, to win the argument, or to make ourselves look better. All right, lying. Gossip is another. We've already mentioned slander. Gossip is kind of like the cousin of uh, slander gossip sometimes it's just true information that we're passing on that isn't helpful but it also can be stretched or it could be not true in the old testament the word that's used for that is tailbearer one who rushes around telling stories the new testament is whispering when we whisper bad reports 
in someone's ears privately, right? We find people, so we're whispering. There's a youth pastor who wanted to help two teenagers in his group understand the destructive nature of this to community, to gossip, to be constantly running around telling stories or whispering behind people's backs. So he uh, got a pillow, a feather pillow, and he took the two kids up on top of the roof of the church. And uh, it was a pretty windy day. But he cut the pillow open and let all the feathers go. They just blew away. And then he said to them, those feathers are like your gossip. So I'd like to give you an assignment. Go find all of those feathers and bring them back to me. And of course they couldn't, right? The wind carried them away to who knows where. And that's how gossip is. Once you gossip about someone, pass along something that's not true, it's so hard to chase it down and to get it back as it spreads. So gossiping could be a form of lying. Flattery is another one. Flattery is smooth talk. Now, one of the commentators said, gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. So I'm going to go talk, but I would never say that if they're here. Flattery, on the other hand, is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. So you would never say to them, hey, you, you do a good job, man. I really appreciate you. You never say that to uh, behind their back. You don't tell other people that. But to them, man, you do a good job. You're so good, right? Because you want something from them. That's flattery. And one last one is when you fail to keep your word. Hey, in our life group, appreciate you sharing that request. I'm going to keep that confidential. And then you pass it along to someone else. Hey, I'll sign up. I'll serve once a month. And then every time that week comes around, you're not there. You're not able to fulfill your word. Hey, I see you got a lot of leaves in, in your yard there. I'd love to help out. Let me stop by this week and rake those leaves. And then you don't. Or, hey... That's a really important conversation we need to have. Let me call you. And then we don't call. So failing to keep our word. So when he says don't lie, it could include exaggeration, gossip, flattery, failing to keep your word. And again, in Ephesians it says, don't do that. Because we're all part of the same body. So he says, put off anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and do not lie. As I went through that list, how did you do any of these that you need to take off, you need to get rid of as a follower of Christ? What are we going to do with these? Well, Paul says we need to get rid of them. We need to put them in the garbage. Get rid of them. Those are the things that we need to get rid of. How do we get along in the church? Paul says first, there's some things that we got to get rid of and just put them in the garbage. We don't need. We need to reject those things that destroy community. Now, if you're humorous and you're thinking like me, it's like, oh no, I don't have any clothes on. So we need to put some new clothes on. I feel kind of nervous getting dressed in front of you guys. Oh, didn't work. I never got dressed in front of people before. All right, here we go. 
All right, we're going to put on some new clothes. Let's look at a different list. Verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with a new list. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Let's talk about compassion. Compassion is something that you feel. It's a deep sensitivity to the needs and hurts of other people. The question we should ask is, what do you feel? Our third through fifth graders, they go around and share requests, and someone shares that their pet passed away that week. What do the other kids in that class feel? Do they feel compassion? A teenager shares in their small group on Wednesday night that they've been working to get their grades up, and they've not been able to, and they're ineligible now for a really important game that's coming up that week. What do those other teenagers in the group feel for that person? One of our young adults shares that uh, it's been hard walking with Christ and being part of the church because their parents aren't Christians and they just don't understand her commitment to Christ and to the church. What do the other members of that group feel towards that person? You read in the care and prayer that somebody this week, the grandmother passed away. And it wasn't a grandma that just lives other part of the country. Somebody who was really close that they were with several times a week. What do we feel for that person? That's compassion. It's an understanding, a sympathy. Paul says, put on compassion. There we go. Kindness. Put on kindness. Kindness is an attitude that we have towards others that leads us to actions, to kind acts. It's kind of the opposite of malice. If malice is people have wronged me and I have ill will towards them, kindness is an attitude of goodwill that leads me to do kind things for people. He also says that we should put on humility. Humility. This is uh, our attitude towards ourself, really. Attitude towards ourself. So, I was thinking back to one of the arguments that my wife and I had. It was uh, pretty intense. And both of us said some things that we really shouldn't have said. And uh, so it kind of ended. That was in the afternoon. Later that evening, my wife, who was one of the most humble people that I've ever known, came crawling back on her hands and knees. And she looked at me and she said, John Charles, which is what she called me when she was upset. John Charles, come out from underneath that bed and let's talk this through like adults. <laughs> right? So she was willing to come down to my level. But humility is a correct view of yourself in relationship to God and others. What do you think about yourself? In the uh, Roman culture, the Greek culture, this word was never used in a positive way. It was despised. What was admired was a very self-sufficient, strong person. And Christianity followed the lead of their Savior, Jesus. And they took this word and they filled it with meaning and made it a positive virtue. And Paul says this, humility is something we need to have because it preserves unity. So imagine from the outset, if people in our church knew that you had their best interest in mind and you had no intention of belittling them in any way, 
or promoting yourself? What if each of us knew that from the very beginning? That would be humility. Paul says, put on humility. Then he says, put on gentleness. Gentleness, I think, is the effect of humility as you approach others. When we are humble, then we approach others with gentleness. And it communicates the value of other people. It promotes an atmosphere of nurture where people can grow. One of the definitions is that it has a mild, soothing quality to it. I thought about when you have sunburn and it itches or it's burning, you know, and you put that spray on there, it just cools it. There's a mild, soothing quality to it. One question that I heard a pastor ask one time is, what's it like to be on the other side of you? What's it like to be on the other side of you? So we could ask that question in different contexts, but I want to encourage you, if you have the courage, ask some of the people in our church, in your life group, in your D group, in your interactions in ministry, or as you talk to people, hey, I, I want you to really be honest with me. What's it like to be on the other side of me? Would they answer, you're gentle. There's a gentleness to it. In uh, student ministry, I did that for 30 years. And I uh, did a lot of things well, and I did a lot of things not so well. When, uh, you guys remember we had North Kent Mall down there on Plainfield? Cool idea, activity. We had all the adults and parents, the leaders, disguise ourselves. And this was a different time when you could do more of this kind of stuff. And we went and just walked through the mall just as shoppers. And the kids had to come and find us. And so we had a great time doing that. I had a skull cap, and uh, look at this guy in my church. Shaved his mustache, wore a wig and a dress. It was awesome. He's like one of the most manly men that, you know. We had a great time. And then we were going to go to Baskin Robbins. If you, somebody remember that was there, right? But I don't know if you ever went in that Baskin Robbins. It was not really a sit-down place. So our group of 20 pops off over from the mall to Baskin Robbins, and we walk in. First, I didn't think about the fact that, oh, we're all dressed in weird costumes. People are looking at us. You see the parents are a little shy, especially. And then we go in, and they're like, well, where are we going to eat? And I go like, oh, I thought we were going to eat here. Now there's no place for us to eat. I was feeling so embarrassed. Like, oh, I should have checked this out and everything. Two ladies in my group, Carrie and Kathy. Oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. You know what? We'll go pick up some ice cream at Myers, and we'll go to my house. Kathy said she had a big house and, and that. And I was like, oh, okay. But while we're driving, my wife and I are driving. I was like, oh, I'm just going to keep going. And <laughs> I didn't want to go to the house, have to face all of that. But, you know, Kathy and Carrie were gentle. There was a soothing quality to them. And the night turned out great, but in large part because they practiced gentleness. The last one that he mentions is patience. If gentleness is humility and its effect upon how we approach people, patience really is humility's effect on how we respond to people. Are we patient with people? Our reaction. Patience is a reluctance to retaliate when hurt or wronged, and it focuses on restraint and forbearance. So it's the opposite of having a short fuse. You guys know people, or do you struggle with that? Real short fuse. Patience is having a long fuse, but it's also having it over a long period of time. Again, this was not a Greek or Roman virtue. When they heard Paul saying, you need to have humility, no way. And you need to have patience. Not going to happen. Patience, Aristotle said, 
or about that idea. The greatest Greek virtue was the refusal to tolerate any insult and a readiness to strike back. In our culture today, you get that right? Hey, you don't have to take anything from anybody. Don't let people walk on you. When they hurt you or wrong you, try to step over you, you give it right back. That was the idea there too. But John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers said, patience is to have a wide soul, to exercise a largeness of soul that can endure annoyances over a period of time. And so he says to put on patience. How are we going to get along in the church? So there's some things you've got to get rid of. Take that off, throw them in the garbage, and there's some things you need to put on. You've got to put on compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are our new clothes because we are new people. But there is a part for us to play. We have to take those things off, and we have to put these on. So, man, why is that so hard, though? Because that's not always our experience, is it? Again, we come to know God instantaneously, but we've got to learn the way of God. It's a process. And so in the church, we don't expect perfection from everybody, but we are looking for progress. So you know what we're going to have to do? Two things. He says in verse 13, bear with each other and forgive one another. One commentator said, so the truth is what Paul is saying here is there are some people in the church you're just going to have to put up with. And that's good news because you're going to have to put up with me as well. So we're going to have to bear with one another because we are not all going to do this perfectly all the time. And we are going to have to forgive one another. You say, oh, that person is just so annoying. I can't stand. Put up with one another. Bear with one another. But you don't understand. I've been wronged. Let me tell you what they did to me. Forgive them, Paul says. You're going to have to forgive them. Now, you see uh, each other there. And one another, if you're familiar with the New Testament, that's a phrase that's there many times. It speaks to the mutual responsibility to one another. You're going to have to put up with me, and I have to put up with you. I'm going to need you to forgive me, and I need to forgive you. The NIV commentary had this really helpful statement. He who is unwilling to forgive breaks the bridge over which he too must cross. When we're unwilling to forgive, we're breaking that relationship that we're going to need because we're going to need forgiveness as well. So forgiving people can be hard. Maybe right now you're thinking of someone that you need to forgive or that you struggled to forgive or a particular circumstance. So let me just give you... A couple of thoughts to help you. Number one, be willing to forgive. This is about your attitude. Be willing to forgive. Again, it's a mutual benefit. You need to forgive others because they're going to need to forgive you. But also, you're like, you know what? They don't deserve it. If you knew what they did to me, there's no way they deserve my forgiveness. And the truth is, you and I didn't deserve it either. So look what he says in verse 13. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. God has made us new people. He pursued us and gave his son Jesus, who came and lived a perfect life and then sacrificed it on our behalf. And he gave us life. And we didn't deserve that. And sometimes the people that you are being asked to forgive, they don't deserve it either. But our heart and life is being transformed in a way that you and I should be willing to give to others what we've already received from God. 
When we talk about forgiveness, we talk a lot about should we forget it. And there is a sense in which we need to deal with that. But I want to encourage you not to forget what's happened. I want to encourage you to remember. Remember what God did for you. To be forgiven puts you in a position to be able to forgive other people. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. They don't deserve it. But because God forgave us, it makes all the sense in the world. We can be empowered to forgive as God forgave us, eagerly, generously, abundantly, and completely. That's what God did for us. So we ought to be willing to extend that to others. Secondly, when someone asks for forgiveness, grant it. Now, sometimes it can be a process and we need some time to get to this. But the goal is that if somebody comes and says, hey, will you forgive me? That we would grant it. You say, well, what if they don't come back and ask for forgiveness? Well, number one, be willing. And in your willingness to forgive, that helps protect your heart from bitterness. Or acting in unloving ways. So I'm willing to forgive them. Between me and God, it's already settled. But when they do come and ask, then grant it. One author has put it this way. The first step is kind of like taking a forgiveness and putting it in a box and wrapping it up with a bow. And then setting it outside their doorstep. So it's there when they're ready to ask for forgiveness. Without them asking, the relationship can't be reconciled. The design is that people ask for forgiveness, you grant it, the relationship is reconciled. But you guard your heart against bitterness by being willing to forgive. Think of it as wrapping it up and setting it outside their door so that when they're ready, they can open it up. And when they ask for forgiveness, you're ready to grant that. So love God, love others. When the church gets along, there is nothing else like it. What else would we have in common? We have Christ who is all and in all. And there is nothing else like the church when it works that way. Now, if I said, you know, if you want to skip that whole sermon thing and just summarize it in one word, what word would you pick? I'll give you a hint. The color red represents it. So what one word would you pick? Well, Paul picks love. Picks love. Look at verse 14. Over all these virtues, put on love. Love is what all of those things entail. It's what binds it all together and it gives us perfect unity. So we love God. We love others. And when we love then we get rid of some things that are destructive to the community. We put on things that promote it. What if we cheated and I asked you, uh, what two words would you use? Love and peace. Look at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. So we let the peace of God rule in our life, and we extend that to each other because we are one Body, We have perfect unity, and now we are the body of Christ. So as Christ followers, this is what we are called to give our life to. In the new clothes that we wear, even in the new song that we sing. Look at verse 16. 
Let the message of Christ dwell. Let this message of who Jesus is and that he gives us new life and he's put us in the body of Christ. Let this message dwell in you richly. And then teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. Singing to God. So we've already sung some songs together. We do that and offer it to God. But did you know at the same time we are instructing and admonishing each other? So even in our songs, we see this unity and being in the body. And then he just says, and whatever you do, verse 17, whatever you do then, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's a lot today about branding and having your own brand. You know what our brand is? Jesus. That's it. That's the thing that matters. So whatever you do in word and deed, you do it in the name of Jesus to represent him. And what represents Jesus better than a group of people who have nothing in common gathering together and functioning as the body for Christ is all and is in all. So when people poke their head in our gathering place here as they watch us interact, they're supposed to see Jesus. And they see that Jesus is compassionate and he's kind and he's humble, he's gentle, he's patient. He is love. He is peace. He is greater than all. He is all. And that's what we have an opportunity to reflect when we get along. When we don't get along, what picture do they get of our Savior? So we have to do everything we can to get along, to get rid of these old clothes, to put on new clothes. We're going to transition now to communion, so I'm going to ask the deacons and elders come up that are going to help us with that. Communion is a celebration of those first two things, that we are new people and we're part of a new body. We're in a new place. It's a time to remember that, to celebrate it, to think about it. But it's also a time to think about our relationships with each other. And so in a moment, we're going to pass out the elements and we'll have some time for you to reflect, talk to the Lord. I encourage you to think through those negative things that we're supposed to take off. How are you doing there? Is there anything you need to confess? Those new clothes that we're putting on. Anything there that you want to talk to the Lord about and maybe ask forgiveness for, or maybe he brings to mind somebody you should talk to after we're done and go and ask for their forgiveness. Or maybe there's somebody who's wanted it and you've been unwilling to grant it. Communion is about Jesus, but it's also about us as the body of Christ. If you're here and you don't know Jesus yet, I just encourage you to let the elements go by. This really is for those of us that know Christ. We remember what he did and we celebrate it. But I would encourage you just to think about where you're at in your life. Do you have the meaning and purpose that comes because God designed you to be in relationship to him? Not being able to keep God's law brings shame and guilt. And Jesus offers us the opportunity to give that shame and guilt to him and to find forgiveness and peace, and life, and to have a family to do life with. And you can come to know him right where you are and just ask him, God, will you forgive me of my sins? And I believe that Jesus is your son. He died for me. He rose again. And I want to give my life to him. So we'd encourage you to maybe do that or think about that. And for the rest of us who know Christ, let's just remember and thank him and evaluate our life and where we are.
All right, we're going to pass out the elements. And again, we've uh, just started back to passing the elements, and some things are a little bit different, so we're adjusting things as we go. But as they come, there's a, a set of two cups. One's got the wafer on the bottom and the juices on top. So you just take one set of those cups, and in the middle, you'll find uh, those wafers that are uh, gluten-free. So let me pray, and then we'll pass the elements. God, we are just overwhelmed by your goodness and your love for us. We don't deserve any of it. We're so sinful and stubborn and go our own way. God, thank you for Jesus. God, we thank you that not only do we get new life, but we get a new place. Thank you for this body here at North, North Park. We, we know we're so imperfect so many times that we don't live this out, but we do want so badly to reflect a true picture of who you are. So would you continue to shape us as a, individuals and as a church to reflect Jesus properly? Help us to keep focused on the right things. And even now during this time, as we remember you, if there are things that we need to get right, that we need to do better, God, we commit ourselves to that. And if we need to go and talk with somebody and make things right, help us to follow up with that afterwards. Use this time to be a blessing to us, and I hope that it will be a blessing to you as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.